Want to exhibit your work? BFF doesn't exist without artists. BFF will help you get in contact with neighborhood businesses and spaces and guide you through any other help you need. Start the conversation at BFFOmaha.org. BFF is dedicated to supporting the region's emerging and established artists by creating opportunity, exposure, and experiences that help them move forward while enriching the cultural competency of the greater Omaha area. BFF to the arts. BFF to the community. BFF. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I am Tom Noblock. Today's show, we have a story that I had never heard of. You may know about it. I don't know how connected you listening to this are with the Lincoln the mythology of Lincoln, Nebraska, but I certainly am culture. I learn more and more every week how culturally illiterate I am. Uh, I really don't know anything, and uh, I, this show is me getting, you know, point zero 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 one percent smarter about anything, any given topic. So, last week we had uh, environmental in- sustainability consulting from Jessica Mizar. This week we've got Sharonda Harris Marshall and Kathy Lohmeyer talking about the history of the drumstick, which was a chicken place in Lincoln that became this hot spot of some of the greatest bands you've ever heard of. Only it was kind of right before they blew up. And it's a wild, crazy, true, tragic story that you get to hear today. And, you know, different mediums have different ways of exposing stories, the different ways that they highlight the elements of the story. And so this is one telling of that story, but the way to really get it out to a lot of different people is what Sharonda and Kathy are here to actually talk about, which is they're turning this into a documentary. And they've pretty much got what they need for it. They do need a little bit more funding, so please head on over to their website. Uh, to support the documentary that they're making. They talk about all that in the episode, but just be aware as you listen, uh, they want to get this story out there. They want to make this something that appeals beyond just, you know, people talking in Omaha even, but also share this episode. I, you know, I, you kind of have your own favorites. Some people like to sit down and watch a documentary. Other people like to hear a conversation. I, you know, as you may guess, I'm a little more of a conversation guy. And today I've got that conversation for you. So stick around for a couple seconds and we will get into that. Another quick reminder, if you support what we do at this show, please consider heading on over to patreon.com slash Creative. We've got all kinds of different tiers where if you give $1 versus $5, you get exclusive uh, Patreon audio content, all kinds of things. So there are perks for that. Helps us keep the show going more importantly. For, you know, On my end, it's more important that I keep the show going than you get the perk, but you also get the perks, so it works out. Um, so yeah, head on over to that if you're interested in that. Otherwise, stick around here for my conversation with Sharonda Harris-Marshall and Kathy Lohmeyer. Okay, so the first I've heard about this documentary, the documentary is called Remember the Drumstick, uh, was when Sharonda talked to me at, uh, we were at the Nebraska Film Association meeting. So this, it's already in post-production, you guys are already almost done with it? Yes. How long have you been working on it? Um, well, I've only been working on it for a couple of months, uh, Kathy's pretty much been working on this. I feel like I've been working on this my whole life. Yeah, I was about to say that. It's pretty much her whole life. Because it is. It's like the story of my life and um, my family's life and this crazy chicken restaurant that became a rock and roll club where some of the most iconic bands of the 1980s played there in Little Old Lincoln, Nebraska. Yeah, it, and that's a crazy element of it. So, I mean, because it is your life story to some extent, I mean, obviously you've been living with it. So maybe we should start, go all the way back to that. So it was your brother, Tim, 
uh-huh. who did it. Yeah. So it was a family chicken restaurant before any of this happened. Was it called the Drumstick still? It was called the Drumstick. Okay, because it applies to both. I mean, yeah, that's that's part of the the whiz bang about this whole thing. These musicians would come into town, and they would think, "Oh yeah, let's just go." buy some more some gear some drumsticks or some gear you know for our guitars we need some new strings thinking it was a music store or a record store because it was the drumstick and then they'd get there and they'd realize it was the chicken drumstick not the instrument drumstick so when did that when did your family start to have the chicken place well um let me get to really get this story yeah okay you know how to tell it. I'm going to tell you a little bit more than you probably need, but since we have an hour, it'll oh, yeah. be, it'll no be such fun. Thing. We'll fill this up. Um, my family are just a bunch of Nebraska people, okay? This is an absolute born and bred Nebraska story. My parents came from a small town called Sutton, Nebraska. They were, um, you know, survivors of the Depression, and they were survivors of World War II. My father learned how to cook as a in in the army yeah and when he got out of the army after world war ii he worked in restaurants and he worked in taverns and he worked in bars and um my mother was a nurse and she was married to someone else before she married my father but her first husband was killed in world war ii in the south pacific so she had one son she came back to sutton with her one son my father had come back to sutton with his cooking skills, <laughs> they met up and proceeded to have seven more children. Wow. Okay. Did he did he want to cook? Was that something that did they just throw him you know uh, like a frying pan and say, all right, this is your job now? Well, did he want to cook? I mean, that's what he did in the army, right. and you take orders, right? He was good at it. The legends that I've heard about my father are that uh, his tent. Everybody wanted to eat out at his tent because his salt because he used more salt or whatever (laughs) he made the food taste better right um so he was good at it but did that is that what he always dreamed of himself doing probably not there's i I don't know even in the army i mean is that something where like do they ask who wants to cook somebody has to or do they just pick somebody out of a crowd you i believe they just pick people yeah okay (laughs) (laughs) well i'll say this much dad my dad being a survivor of the depression he was he left school at seventh grade and he was in the CCC camps back, you know, 1933 to 43 when, you know, FDR creates jobs for people and they go do conservation work all over. Mm-hmm. That's where he was from. So he probably couldn't do much other than cook because that's all he didn't have much skills. He didn't have uh, a lot of reading skills or math skills. Worked out pretty well for him, though. Well, he he, he was a he was a go getter. You know, Dad was a go getter. I think he would have rather been, you know, someone that lived in Las Vegas, you know, and worked the casino scene. Oh, I yeah? think I think that's what he would have liked to do <laughs> as a man, as a grown adult. But he wound up with you know eight kids, and he sure. needed to support them, and so he worked in the restaurant business. Was it a, was it uh, your mom must have been happy that he knew how to cook, right? Yeah, I mean, she was a great cook. They're farm people. Yeah, you know. She came from a family of seven kids. He came from a family of 12, 13 kids. So, and they were all farmers and they cooked for, you know, all the ranch hands and the farm hands that would come in and do harvesting. And, you know, this is salt of the earth kind of Nebraska story. Mm -hmm. Those are my parents. And so over time, I'm the seventh child out of these eight kids. And Tim was the sixth. And my younger brother, Greg, was the eighth. So anyway, over time... 
um, dad, I know he's kind of floated in and out of different places. I know where the village is, village inn is uh, in Lincoln at 27th and Cornhusker. There was a place called Kent's Cafe. I remember that place because I was about a five-year-old kid when he had that place. And what happened to it, I don't know, but all of a sudden there's a village in there. So anything, it could have been sold so that a village inn could have been built there at the time. That was his place, though? Yeah, well, you know, he, you, back in those days, let's say in the 50s and the 60s, there weren't franchises. (laughs) Everybody's restaurant was a mom and pop restaurant. Mm -hmm. Everybody's restaurant, you know, you cooked breakfasts and pancakes and hamburgers and french fries and you know you made specials (laughs) but i mean he was confident enough in his ability to say i can sort of run the place it can be my place i'm not just going to go be a cook somewhere right 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 i mean he he had a great personality dad worked the room Mm -hmm. that's why i said he would have been great in las vegas (laughs) (laughs) but you know he would he would cook like a mad fiend and then he would come out and he would sit with the clients and talk to them and become they would become regular customers that's what you wanted back then was Mm -hmm. you wanted those regular customers and the way you got them was to get to know them right and so he did that in spades and when he when his children started to grow up then all of a sudden those kids are all working for him too because it's that's the way you did it with farm families you had a lot of kids and they worked they were part of your labor pool Mm -hmm. so you know, my older siblings worked in this place called Kent's Cafe, and and then he lost that or sold it or whatever. I don't really know. But he was kind of in and out of places for a while. Because I remember there were some times when, as little kids, you know, we were not, you know, we weren't, we didn't have much. <laughs> yeah. I got a lot of hand-me-downs. We shopped a lot at Goodwill. You know, eight kids. That's the way it was done. Sure. And but we always had good food. We always had food to eat because he always worked in the food business, and uh, part of the inventory, I'm sure, made it to our house every now. And yeah, then. all the stuff that they're going to throw out at the end of the night. <laughs> mm, yeah, hopefully, yeah. hopefully it was that. <laughs> but bottom line was, um, in 1966, he discovered the drumstick, and this was a restaurant on North 48th Street, between R and Vine Street, basically in Lincoln. And this place was for sale. And he was in between jobs. And they worked out a deal. He took over the business. And we had that place from 1966 till it closed in 1987. So from 1966 to 1978, it was just a chicken restaurant. Mm -hmm. Now, he was one of the first 24-hour places open in Lincoln, which was... Like a cash cow, like you would not yeah, believe. That's his, uh, his Vegas instincts, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people in the documentary who commented about how great it was that the drumstick was 24 hours because it was literally like nothing else in Lincoln to do. Well, yeah, and so I mean, so he's got that entrepreneur element to him, or you know, the business sense to know if there's a market for something 24 hours, may may as well open the place 24 hours. You said it. Yeah. I mean, people. What do you want to do when you're getting out of the bar after you've had a nice, fun night of drinking? Eat some chicken, I guess. Sober up and eat chicken. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You want to sober up and you'll eat whatever that comfort food is. Mm -hmm. And we served breakfast 24 hours a day. And then we also served fried chicken all night long, too. He was ahead of the times, right? Because that's that's a popular thing now. He was a smart businessman. You know, he didn't have a lot of classic business education, but he was a, a mover and a shaker, you know, mm-hmm. in to survive the depression and and to be able to 
provide for a family of eight without a lot of skill sets, yeah, you had to be a mover and a shaker. And so did you guys all all end up working there? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. (laughs) How was that? It was. Well, when we were young, it was very fun. It was kind of like, we we get to go help out at the drumstick. Yay. And then when you got to be a teenager, it was like, God damn it. I don't want to go out to work today. Yeah, I'm going to add on to that. Anybody who's ever worked a family business knows the ins and outs of family business. When you're little, it's exciting. But then when you grow up, it's like, oh. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think every kid kind of has that fancy when they're young. It's like, oh, man, I'm going to be cool. I'm going to be an adult. I'm going to get a job. And then your jobs all suck for a long time. Yeah. It's like, oh, we're going to go out and bust tables. Ooh. And then, you know, the waitresses would throw you 50 cents and you'd yeah. be like, woohoo, this was worth it, man. And plus, you know, we ate out at the drumstick a lot. You know, mom would go, screw it. I don't feel like cooking tonight. Let's just go out there and eat. So we'd all bundle into the car and go out to the drumstick. And if it was busy, we'd have to wait until the rush was over. And then we could order our food. So, you know, you kind of helped out during the rush. And so it became just sort of like a staple of the community then, right? Yeah, it was. It was a real... It, 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 like I said, my dad cultivated regular customers. And there were no big, huge franchise restaurants. So... In that area of Lincoln, um, people knew that place, and they would come there, you know, for breakfast. The Goodyear factory was out in that area of Lincoln, and people would come after their late night shift. They would come in and eat breakfast, and people would come in for their lunches. You know, there were no fast food restaurants, so the telephone, Lincoln Telephone and Telegraph workers would come in and have a lunch there. Mm-hmm. And then they would come in in the evening. And then, of course, when they were going out on the town Friday and Saturday night, woohoo, let's go have some fried chicken at the drumstick. And the Sunday business was incredible, too. People after church, they'd get their nice duds on and go to church. And when they were done, it was a special treat to be able to go eat out. And we had good food. So, well, that, that's what makes it different from the, the people who do it now. <laughs> he actually had good food. Uh, well, but so, I mean, was it something where, was he working all day, every day then? Or well, how did that end up working? Well, you, you, the restaurant business runs in shifts. You know, when are people eating? They're eating at breakfast time, at lunchtime, in the evening meal. And if there's a special event, you might get something going on. Mm-hmm. So you always paid attention to what was going on in the city. Like the football games, oh my gosh, crazy, crazy business on football Saturdays. Because all the games were at the same time of day. They all got out around 5 or 5.30. And so people everywhere in the city, you know, at that time was maybe 50,000 or however many the station uh, stadium held. They all let out at this. Oops, sorry about That's that. Okay. Wing! They all let out um, at the same time. And everyone was looking for a place to eat. So the drum circuit was busy for that. Mm-hmm. But basically, he worked those, those busy shifts. So he would work and like open it up at 6 in the morning. And he would work the morning breakfast rush. And then maybe he'd come home and rest a little bit. Then your, or he'd your stay. siblings take over for the rest of the day then? Well, I mean, think of this. We're all little kids still. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, we were all teenagers in school and whatnot. So he would work the morning shift. And then he'd probably stay through the lunch shift till the lunch rush was over and then he would go home and catch some winks and then you know around four thirty-five o'clock he'd get up and he'd go back out to the restaurant for the dinner rush 
And then he would come home after that and maybe watch a little television, watch a little Johnny Carson. Love Johnny Carson, my dad did. And um, and then he would sleep a little while longer. And once he opened the place up 24 hours, then he'd go back out at midnight. Jeez. And he would work the sh- the midnight till probably three in the morning shift. So, I mean, your whole family's relationship with him has got to be just centered on this restaurant. Our family was centered on this restaurant. I mean, have to be. We were. We were. Everything we did, everything. I mean, as we got older, yeah, we started doing the evening shifts instead of he would stay home. But we do the like the five to eight shift. And then as we got old enough, we could stay up past midnight and we could drive ourselves. Then he would start having us come out. And work the midnight to three shift. That's when the magic wore off. And oh. you're like, oh, this is a job. This is a job. Oh, that's when I learned to drink coffee. I'll yeah. say that much. <laughs> you can make great money as tip tip money because the the place I don't know how many people it held, but it held. Let's say it held 200, 250 people mm-hmm. at tables, and at night in that shift, that midnight to one or two in the morning, those tables might turn twice. Wow. So you were serving a lot of food really fast. Did it stay that popular throughout the decades then? Well, um, yeah, up till, I mean, everything changed in 1978. Okay. I mean, we, we had a great going concern. We had all worked there. My one, some of my brothers had worked there and quit and gone on to other things. And my other brothers, some of them would come and go because there were eight of us children. The oldest brother never worked there. He was already gone by the time the drumstick came in. But all the seven other kids did. And, you know, if you left town and wanted to go on vacation, you just left town. Because you knew when you came back, Dad would probably let you work again. Yeah, he wouldn't fire you. <laughs> so bottom line was, uh, yeah, we it was like this, oh my gosh, I, we haven't even talked to people that remember it from when it was just a restaurant. Because it was, you know, a madhouse at night. Because the bar crowd would come in and the regular people would come in. We had regulars all day long. And, you know, we had these crews of people that would work that just knew each other. And, in fact, you know, one the night shift, I remember the two, the, the two people in the night shift, Barb and gosh i can't remember the other guy's name if i remember it i'll say it but they were like the head waitress of the night shift and the head cook of and they hated each other hated each other and they wound up getting married (laughs) you know i mean relationships started in this restaurant and more than one set of cooks and waitresses got married and went on and have families and kids worked there i mean my there's this great story of my dad having um seen these two young kids come in like at five o'clock in the morning on a really cold day. And he said, you kids look like you are really hard workers. You know, do you want a job? I'll give you a job here. And they said, well, sir, we, you know, we're just paper boys. We're only like 14. (laughs) And he goes, well, when you get 16, you come back here and I'm going to hire you. And by God, they did. And they worked for him for, you know, at least a decade after that. Wow. So, I mean, that's, what this this was like a hub of our family life and the hub of lots of other people's lives because siblings worked for him and the parents would come and eat and get their kid a job and then they the kid was working for him and 
And it was just, you know, we all hated it, but we loved it. You know, we just didn't realize how much we loved it until it was gone. Yeah. So what was the turning point? Well, the turning point was me, I guess. It was you. You can tell this part. Well, I think, you know, I wasn't there. I wasn't born in 1978. But um, <laughs> um, but um, according to the story, uh, Kathy actually got married um, and they decided to have the reception at the drumstick. And what band was it again? We had a band called Little Jimmy Valentine and the Heart Murmurs. That's right. The, yes. They were... Um, they played the reception, and her brother Tim, um, apparently, according to the story, had gotten them coked up. Um, and they continued to play throughout the night. And there was these randos that showed up at her reception. Oh, it was it was <laughs> it was such a fun night. It was it was a night to that everybody who was there remembers it. Yeah, but it was all because I needed a place that stayed open later than midnight. Because I had friends, I had I had started working at a different restaurant. My then husband worked at the same restaurant. We all had friends who were not getting off shift till midnight. And my dad said, "Well, just we'll just have it at the drumstick." And I said, "Cool, perfect." So we cooked all our own food. Can you imagine that? <laughs> and you know, I set up a record player for music for old time big band sounds for the old folks. You know, sure. but I had this little Jimmy Valentine and the Heart Murmurs booked for the nine o'clock show <laughs> and if you don't know who that band is uh larry beamer was in that band and larry beamer was the owner of the zoo bar which is in lincoln okay. and still is in lincoln so this was like the primo blues band of lincoln nebraska and we got them for that one night for that wedding reception and you know they came in and start setting up and i expected all the old fogies to go home they didn't they did not <laughs> My mother didn't. My 90-year-old grandfather, German from Russia, didn't go home. <laughs> All the little kids were still there. Everybody was there. And, and this coked up band. And well, they <laughs> of just... Of course, they're still there. Well, yeah. I mean, we, 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 we promised them money. And Tim's like, I'll take care of them for you. <laughs> and I didn't even think about it, but I should have known. Because Tim, well, this is the story of Tim. Okay. My, this Tim's the... The, the sixth child of these eight kids that ran in and out of this drumstick as a restaurant. And, um, yeah, so, golly, you know, he that band just kept playing. We expected them to quit, you know, around 1 o'clock in the morning, and they didn't. Mm -hmm. And they just kept playing and playing, and everybody was dancing. And there's not many photographs of that wedding reception left because when I got divorced I kind of threw them all away <laughs> <laughs> didn't realize there'd be a documentary I had no yeah. freaking clue yeah, that would have been nice to get all of those pictures but under the circumstances <laughs> I, I guess do it's okay. I do have one picture that is a crowd scene of everybody dancing with the band in the way way back and it's a fantastic shot because Tim's in that shot oh my god so anyway it just turns into this free-for-all night with plenty of food and drink and good times. Was the times. Coke going around too, or was that just for the well, band? Well, I think if you were interested, you had to yeah. kind of give Tim a wink and a nod. I mean, yeah, I would assume you could probably find it if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. This is one, 
part of the tale that in my family were all like going, oh, maybe we shouldn't talk about this. But it happened. It's the way it happened. And what Sharonda said was that people were coming into the restaurant like it's still open for business, sitting down while there's a huge party going on on one side. And they go sit down on this quiet side and just look around for a waitress to come and wait on them. And I'd go up to him in my wedding dress going, I'm sorry, but this is a private party tonight. You're welcome to help yourself to some of the food in the buffet back there. But, you know, this, nice is, of you. this is kind of a, a private party and you really shouldn't be here. <laughs> but it turned out, I mean, it was a night to remember. Everybody had such a good time, such a good time. And then what, so that was what the spark was. Mm-hmm. But the real catalyst for all of this was as high and happy as we were at that date in 1978. Two months later, our mother was killed in a car accident. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, literally two months to the day we buried her. And we just went, our whole family just went, what the fuck? Yeah. Because she was our rock, our Gibraltar. She was, you know, our confidant. And she was really someone big in Tim's life. She was big in all our lives. But Tim was this this person in our family that is was just such a personality. He kind of had that gregarious personality outgoing like my dad had, you know? Mm-hmm. He was able to make friends with anybody and get to know everybody and everybody loved him and he was one of the funniest people you ever knew and Growing up with him as a child, he was the best playmate because any game we played was more fun when Tim played it with us. Just that energy he could exude? He just, he had, you know, people talk about the it factor. Mm -hmm. He had it. Whatever that factor is, he had it. And, you know, and when mom died, I think it really hurt him because with this really gregarious, outgoing kind of wild man attitude that he had he also had a heart that was big as the pacific ocean you know and mom knew that about him and nurtured that Mm -hmm. and he himself was a very nurturing guy and but he was this also this wild crazy man so when she was when she died so suddenly we were just all shocked he was actually in bar harbor Bar Harbor, Maine, working in a restaurant out there. He had moved, made a life, had a girlfriend out there, a whole bit. Was he trying to do anything with the it factor that would uh, lead to sort of like a career in entertainment? Or Nope. Okay. No, we were restaurant people. It sounds like it, yeah. We were. I mean, we weren't. I mean, let's be honest. Today's world, everybody wants to be rich and famous, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Well, I ask a little kid, what do you want to be? I want to be famous. And he's like, Instagram well, Instagram star. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> but it's like, well, what do you want to do to be famous? Uh, or, uh, I don't know. You have to do something to be famous. <laughs> but for us, you know, you it wasn't about being rich. It was just about, you know, having enough to support yourself comfortably. Mm-hmm. It wasn't this, you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous kind of thing going sure. on at that time. Was there an impulse to for someone to try to take over the family business at some point? Well, that's really where the story of the Remember the Drumstick story starts, is mm-hmm. with that experience of this wedding reception that was really fun, and then this tragic loss of our mother, which threw the whole family in, into disarray. 
because my dad was lost. He didn't have any interest in the business. I had just, I was two months married to this guy. And I immediately said to myself, oh my God, I've made a huge mistake marrying this guy, oh but boy. I'm uh, here I am. Mm-hmm. And so uh, my sister had been working for my dad during the daytime hours, but he wasn't paying attention and there was no one to work the nighttime hours. My brothers were all off at the time, you know, doing other things. We all just went into a complete tailspin. So my then husband, my sister and I, the three of us were trying to run that business. And also going on at that time was franchises were becoming more and more popular. So as the McDonald's started advertising on television and the Burger Kings started advertising on television and the Village Inns started to be built more in different locations, you know, it all ate into a mom and pop's business. Mm -hmm. So we were just trying to think of how can we get this to support three families, basically, my family, my sister's family, and my dad. Mm -hmm. And that's when we went, well, I don't know, maybe we should try booking bands again. (laughs) So like to, because that party was so insane, it's just like, I mean, were there other people, were there places where bands were playing in Lincoln? Oh yeah. Zoo bar, isn't it? I assume. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there, the zoo bar always played good music always. And they were the primo club at the time for the stuff I liked and Tim liked. And then there were other ban- there were other places in Lincoln. One was called Little Bows out on Cornhusker Highway. Okay. Kind of, I don't know, 50, 56 in Cornhusker, maybe around there somewhere. And then there was um, the Royal Grove, which was out on First and Cornhusker. But so like, you're also thinking you can offer something that's a little different than what they can offer, right? Well, I mean, at first we just wanted to get more business in that's right. all we just you know yeah. let's just get more business in Shake and we, it up. yeah like we we went we never had a liquor license we got a beer and wine license so we were like ha la did da <laughs> we've got beer and wine so we figured that might bring more people in sure and then we started booking these local bands like i think eddie and the clones was the first band that ever played after little jimmy valentine and the heart murmurs and they just played a weekend, you know, a nine to midnight gig, you know, and their their buddies would come out and watch and sing or they'd sing and we'd dance and we'd sell beer and wine. And yeah, it was like, OK, that worked out pretty well. Was it was this while other bands were coming thinking it was a drum store? No, this is this is just this is how this whole thing got started. It was such a crazy fluke. OK, so basically there's me, my husband, my sister and dad Mm -hmm. and we're trying to make this this restaurant keep going you know we're trying to keep it going and we're doing our best to just try to mix it up a little bit keep some more fresh people coming in we had just remodeled it in fact um, right before all this happened so I don't even know what kind of bill my dad had for that remodeling job you know I didn't Mm -hmm. know anything about the finances and um, the (laughs) when it all got put together we realized that the three of us really didn't work well together. You know, I remember I said, I figured, oh, geez, I think I made a mistake getting yeah. married. That's because this fella I married, nobody really liked him. <laughs> Probably a problem in a family business. <laughs> yeah, a very bad thing yeah. in the family business. And he didn't really like anybody either, you know. Hmm. I think it was just 
his family was a bunch of boys, and my family was a bunch of boys, and there was a lot of testosterone involved. Too much? Way too much. A little bit. <laughs> so the bottom line was, um, we're trying to get this thing going, but my then-husband actually worked for the Programs Council at UNL. He got elected to one of those elected positions, and... You know, so he had some access to some booking agents. And, you know, we realized that, you know, it, it could hold a lot of people. It could hold more people than the zoo could. The dance floor was bigger than the zoo. And right about that time, my dad called Tim in Bar Harbor and said, will you come back? And this, so because Tim was the most logical choice to sort of fill your dad's spot as the you know, the person with the it factor. Tim, you know, he just, I think he was my dad's favorite. I mean, I'm not saying, I don't think any of my brothers and sisters would feel bad hearing me say that. But he was. Tim was just such a, an adorable maniac, you know. He just, he just made you want to be around him. And he had that ability to schmooze a crowd and talk to people and mm-hmm. make friends and and I think dad wanted him to come back I mean we had just lost our mother we were still all going through crazy shock and I think my dad just wanted him back in town so he said come back and help run the drumstick how old was your dad at that point good question I think he was 58. So he's thinking basically, you know, kind of getting to the end of yeah. what, what it's going to be. Yeah, he has yeah, to yeah. figure out what the next step might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To we'll make sure his kids are involved. and Right. Yeah, yeah. And so Tim came back just as this music thing was starting to happen. And, and was, was Tim involved in that scene when he was in Bar Harbor as well? I don't know what bar. I don't know what restaurant he worked in. I okay. have no idea. He sounds like a party guy, though, right? From oh, kind of oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, so Lord. He, he probably knows the people, right? You know, he's got some connections. Oh, Lord. He was. I mean, he. Okay, here's a high school story for Tim. When he was in high school, we went to Pius. Pius High School. Pius the 10th High School in Lincoln, Nebraska. And we had this room called the Commons, and it was like down in the basement of the school. <laughs> now, the pious you see today is nothing like the pious in 1970s, okay? Oh, it wasn't still Catholic? It was very Catholic, but it was like, oh, man, the, none of the shades on the windows were the same height. You know, <laughs> it was holes in the shades. Everything was beat up, run down, because it just didn't have any money. Yeah. And everybody who got kicked out of school went to Pius. Everyone that got kicked out of public school (laughs) went to Pius. And Tim made friends with all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he sounds like the kind of guy who must be entertaining enough that everybody wants him to be in their friend group, right? Oh, my God, yes. I mean, he would have, like... uh, Pitching, con- pitching coin contests in the boys' bathroom right off the commons. Yeah. And, you know, he, he would stay, there was a coin-changing machine in the commons because all, we didn't even have cafeteria people. We All we had was vending machines to eat out of. So everybody had to change money to get their food out of these horrible vending machines. There was no lunch offered? No. Wow. It okay. was really, really... And, you yeah, know, people... Lunch. <laughs> <laughs> so Tim would sit on top of the coin-changing machine, and as people would change their money, he'd say, give me a nickel. 
or give me a quarter. Like was he was he bullying them into it or just uh, he was, being charming? Know, and they're like, he eh, was, okay. He was being a little of both. Okay, I guess yeah, sounds like the kind but of. But he would then he would basically gather the money for the uh, the weekend woodsy. Okay. <laughs> so I mean, that's Tim, and nobody hated. No, I mean, sure, I'm sure somebody hated him. I'm sure some kids really didn't like him. Yeah. But by and large, everybody loved him. Thought he was so funny and clever because he was never very great, very good at school. I mean, he probably got by high school by the barest skin of his teeth. Yeah. And I remember he got a standing ovation at his graduation because <laughs> nobody thought he would make it out. <laughs> you, when we, your brother was interviewed, he even talked about how, was he playing pirates or something, that everybody else would fall in line. It's funny because pirates don't follow rules anyway. But everyone fell in line in that game except for Tim. And sounds like your brother still has some... He he still has some, some issues with <laughs> the fact that Tim would not do what he said. Oh my god! When no. they were kids in a pirate game, no, that does not surprise me one teeny tiny bit. Was he rebellious with the family dynamic at all? Oh well, here's the deal. This is the story of this brother that is interviewed. My brother Mark, who got interviewed, Mark was older than Tim, but Tim was taller than Mark by about a foot. <laughs> Cause some problems. <laughs> Tim was taller than all of the boys. Yeah, it sounds like there's some testosterone issues if that's, you said uh, it. If that's a you big said deal. It. And, you know, again, we grew up in the 60s. And, you know, it was a rough and tumble lifestyle with lots of kids. And, you know, you never told your parents where you were, except you came home at dinner time. And if they said, come home by dark, you came home by dark. But other than that, they didn't know where the hell you were. They sure as hell weren't setting up play dates for you. Mm -hmm. And your neighborhood was your domain. And Tim was one of the kings of the domain, you know? He knew everybody, probably in a six-block radius, everybody, he knew them all. And And he was the rogue pirate. And he was the rogue pirate. (laughs) And he probably did that very thing just piss Mark off because he was ornery like that. He had a heart of gold, but he was ornery. Oh my God. But you loved him for it. In some ways, it's kind of like an underdog story though. And it's like this, he becomes the golden boy who has to come in to help fix everything or yeah. change it all, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he did. He, he came in and so we already had this little band thing going, but he was the, he was the brain that went Bing, bong, bong. He's like, oh, God, I know what we can do with this. What did he come up with? He just started to talk to better bands. <laughs> he started promoting like crazy. And um, under Tim's direction, the drumstick went from this chicken restaurant that served like, um, because a lot of people at the time, a lot of the musicians said something about cover bands. There were a lot of cover bands at the time already doing popular music. So he started booking original bands that had their own music. And apparently that was such a shocker to the Lincoln area that the drumsticks reputation carried on through Tim's direction with these original bands. And then they started just falling in line. And he actually also, um, would get press kits from these bands and he would reach out to other bands whenever they came in because um, there was apparently a circuit 
you know, when they did the traveling back in the days from the East Coast to the West Coast, Tim would stop a lot of those bands and say, hey, you got a night coming across country. We got a venue. Here we are. Play our venue. Well, yeah, I mean, so like Lincoln, I assume, did not have a ton of crazy bands coming into, you know, into it in general. right? Passing through. Passing, yeah, but I mean, they wouldn't even know to stop, right? I mean, maybe they'd stop, you know, occasionally, but I mean, they stopped to go to the bathroom, not necessarily to do gigs, I would think, right? Yeah, and that's and, that's, and Tim stopped them and was like, "Hey, yeah. look, play this gig." Go up to him in the bathroom. We have coke. <laughs> hey, yeah, uh, right. You might have some fun. <laughs> yeah, or whatever, anything. Right? Well, that, and chicken. That's the angle. I assume he can he can provide that maybe you weren't able to provide, right? Or it's like whatever they needed, he could get for them. Right? It was it was just that conflux of the time and the place. You know, I know that we were all trying to get over our mother's death, and I, honest to God, think none of this would have happened if she hadn't died. None of it, because Dad would have just kept clinking away at the drumstick, selling chicken and family business, you know, and everything would have stayed the same. Tim would have probably lived out in Bar Harbor. Mm-hmm. Um, but when Tim came back and he saw that we were booking these local bands, he started, Tim had an ear for music, okay? How he got this, I don't know exactly, but I do know that when we were kids, like he and I were, you know, six and four and my little brother was maybe two up until the time he was about 10 my dad having worked in restaurants had always had a jukebox mm-hmm. and the jukebox man when he pulled his records out to put new ones in he would give the old ones to my dad so we had just stacks of 45s in our house and they were all you know the hits of that time that mm-hmm. time period and so that was the background music to our childhood. We would just stack them on the little record player and, you know, we'd flip them when they all played. And if we stacked too many of them, the arm wouldn't clear them and just make this horrible noise. But we'd just slip song after song after song. So it's very likely that Tim developed this ear for a hit song. Right. You were soaking listening. it all in. We were just soaking it all in. Mm-hmm. And he was a very, very energetic and creative kid he used to draw these hot rods you know those race not the drag racers yeah. he used to draw those things like they're mad and um so he was creative he had a great ear we used to sing when we were little kids and and all of this just jumbled up inside this this crazy it personality he had when he came back he just he saw the he saw the the writing on the wall Plus, I saw the writing on the wall, and I and my husband and I quit the place. Because <laughs> you knew it was about to get insane? Well, I knew when Tim came back, I was like, this is not going to fucking work now. I mean, they already hate my husband, yeah. and he doesn't like them either. What the hell am I going to do? I'm just two months, three months, four months married, whatever. Am I going to get a divorce? No, I'm too proud to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I left. And it was right about the time that I left that my then husband had booked a Joan Jett concert at the Drumstick. Wow, okay. He had, like I said, he had worked for the Lincoln UNL Programs Council, and he had these booking agents. And we went, "Mm, what the heck? You know, we can hold more people. How much does she cost for a night? God, you know, if we cram enough people in here and charge this amount of money, we can cover her her requirement, you Mm -hmm. know? Her, uh, what do you call it? 
cover booking charge. Fee? Her, co- her booking fee. We can cover her booking fee with the door, and then any beer and wine and food and whatever we sell, it's all good. Right. Yeah. So we had had we had that booked, but we my husband and I left right before that event happened, and so Tim was there when that event happened, and that was when it all took off. Yeah. Then it was history. Or he could see. <laughs> he could see the potential. Oh there. my God! Yeah. Well, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you've got to hear people talk about this show, and that's what this documentary is going to do. These are the firsthand stories of people who went to these shows in a chicken shack <laughs> and saw these bands like you would not believe in an incredibly intimate environment where you know they're basically standing on a riser, maybe eighteen inches off the floor. So and you're right beside them and they're dripping sweat on you. Right. And they're playing music and the and the crowd is electric and you just can't get enough of it. And the you know, I don't know how familiar you're you go to bands to hear bands, don't yeah, you? Yeah. I mean, is it all arena rock that yeah, you for the most part, yeah. Well, you need to you will never experience anything as exciting as an intimate show when you have a really hot band. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm not cool enough in general to have had any experience like what you're talking about here. <laughs> but I want to also mention that um, we did, you know, there was Joan Jett that went there, R.E.M. went there, Red Hot Chili Peppers went there. But a lot of the bands, and that's also part of the story, a lot of these bands were broke or they had, you know, they, they were coming on, like Jason and the Scorchers was like the big one. Um, they were coming and the appeal was they also got to eat. Wow. Okay. So because so, <laughs> they were they were so broke that that was an appeal. They were broke musicians on the road and they stopped at these this place here that sold chicken and part of the deal was you got to eat as much chicken as you want it <laughs> and you might even sleep in the parking lot. Um, like you were allowed to sleep in the parking lot? That was part of the pitch? Yes. Oh, or, or we'd rent them a hotel room or... Sure. I mean, my sister even put some of some band members up in her house. She had an empty house at one time. <laughs> yes, and I think the good thing about this documentary it is showing that that non glamorous part of that rock and roll era because a lot of people, like especially nowadays, like Rihanna, is not going to eat no fried chicken from some chicken shack. She will not play at a chicken shack. But back then, that was the heart of the music was. To go into these intimate places like the drumstick, meet your fans, party with your fans, and then you move on. Or sometimes you came back because there were a lot of bands that booked multiply, mm-hmm. multiple. Multiple times. Yeah. I mean, it. remember I described to you this family feeling of this restaurant? Mm-hmm. Well, now just put musicians into the mix. Yeah, it was musicians. the same dang feeling. They would come knowing that Oh, Jesus, we made it back to the drumstick. We can eat something. We can get some decent food into our bodies, and we can kind of rest up. And, and uh, you know, Tim will take care of us because we know Tim. Tim's cool. And we're going to have some fun here because the fans will remember these fans. I remember talking to that guy the last time we came. He was really interesting, and we partied with him after the show, and we had a great time. And, and it just became like this little circuit mm-hmm. of these bands coming through north south east west some of them were local kids that like would never have charlie gotten burton. a chance to play yeah like charlie yeah. charlie burton 
Okay. He played the drumstick. Um, the Rip Chords, these are all bands from the 80s. You may not remember them. Um, Sarah Kavanda, I don't know if you remember her, The Click. They okay. were. These yeah. were all bands of the 80s. And they were, some of them were just kids. Some of them weren't even old enough to be in the drumstick. And Tim would say, sure, I'll book you. Just a better not see you with a beer in your hand, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, I won't look. <laughs> but um, so it, it, it took on an even, this family feel just became bigger because mm-hmm. of the way Tim took care of these bands when they came through. It's got to become like legendary, really. It is. It's a legendary place. And um, the... The the bands that Sharonda mentioned, Red Hot Chili Peppers, yeah, they came through there. It's but crazy. they came through in the 80s before they hit it big in the 90s. R.E.M. came through in the 80s before they hit it big in the 90s. They're probably big enough to draw a crowd though, right? Not the first time. Really? There, apparently, okay. there were some people who were like, oh, I missed that show. Um, cause there was some interviews that was, um, they missed the Joan Jett show and are kicking themselves all these years that they missed that show. Yeah. I mean, the, these were nobody bands at the time. You got to understand now, Tim was getting press kits from, uh, booking agents and he, I got on, I can only imagine how many hundreds of these things he would get mm-hmm. a month. And he would listen to them, and he would pick which ones he wanted. And these are the ones he picked. Wow! So, so he could tell the ones that likely would have made it big, the ones that would. He click. just he picked the shit he liked. <laughs> That's all well, I can tell you. He had good taste in it. I mean, clearly his taste would be successful. Oh I mean, yeah, and um, there were some bands that were hard to define, also because there were a lot of bands that did more kind of punkish rock, but there was um, some bands that was like, well, I'm not really a punk person i'm a country slash we it was some weird combination of some genres i think jason and scorchers was one of the yeah um where they were like what country rock country rock punk punk. yeah country (laughs) rock punk and it's just this crazy time you know that 70s and 80s rock era that can't really be i mean that era is gone right yeah, um, it was so. really the way I describe it to people is it was like the birth of the alternate rock period, yeah. well, alt, alt rock. And how long, because I oh, mean, cool. right before it, it was freaking disco. <laughs> right. You know yeah. what year did freaking you know Saturday Night Fever come out? Seventy seven or something like seventy eight. Yeah, seventy seven. Fuck me. <laughs> I mean, I like the movie, but. Oh. <laughs> Not not a Bee Gees fan, really. Uh, radio constantly playing that yeah. all the time. Oh, it was bad. Yeah. So and so the bands that we were starting to hear on the radio was and the stuff you were starting to hear on Saturday Night Live was Blondie and Joe Jackson and Elvis Costello, and we're going, yeah, now that's some stuff we can listen to, because you know the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young stuff had kind of faded. And the Beach Boys had kind of faded a little bit, but they were really big, hot bands. But, you know, the musicians in town and other people that Tim talked to were saying, yeah, let's do this alt-rock. Let's find some more of these alt-rocks, alt-rock bands. And and then there were the local kids who mm-hmm. wanted to play punk music. And they would have had no place to play except if the drumstick hadn't booked them. There would have been nowhere for them to play because Little Bo sure as hell wasn't going to book a punk band <laughs> yeah. and the Royal Grove sure as hell wasn't going to. 
There's something fitting, I think, about as the music's getting messier that you go to a chicken place to play. Oh, honey, you just have no idea how totally weird it was. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to, that's why we have to get this documentary finished. Right. We have to get this documentary finished because that way everyone will know how weird it was and how unusual and crazy and tragic it all was. And and how you should value everything you've got in everything you love just value it right now and never take it for granted because it will all be gone someday you know because the drumstick's gone what's the story of that well it's go ahead china well um part of the story that we're trying to um tell in our documentary is that the drumstick and tim kind of are parallel stories so you have tim who was at the height of you know living his life enjoying himself but he started to suffer some health issues um excuse me some health issues um he was hemophiliac so um he had an incident where he had to go to the hospital and needed a blood transfusion and that blood transfusion was contaminated by the hiv virus because that was what happened back then yeah. with a lot of those and so when he started to get sick that's when the drumstick actually started to shudder because he was not there to guide it every step of the way well health issues he lost he lost a little Interest. bit of of that yeah which makes i mean he's got other i mean things i mean it was it was so shocking to him right you know Just and tim and tim <laughs> let's be honest he had been in trouble before he had had health health problems before but he always managed he was a survivor just mm. like my dad just like everybody in my family we're survivors you know we make it and he had beat the odds more than once in more than one occasion but this was something nobody even knew about yeah, they HIV still in the 80s yeah. HIV in the 80s they didn't even know hardly what to call it they mm. didn't know how it was spreading and they sure as hell didn't know that it was in the blood supply right. and so he and countless other people with hemophilia contracted HIV from blood transfusions during the 80s. So, I mean, once again, the drumstick is struck with just this complete random tragedy that's horrible Mm -hmm. and messes it all up. Yep. Yeah, and it was because Tim, in a lot of ways, was the drumstick when he started, his when his health started to fail and started probably to lose a little bit of hope that things were going to get better because it was kind of pretty, it was pretty dire back then to get an HIV Yeah, diagnosis. it was it was a death sentence. Yeah. You, you know, you know that. Yeah. And then, um, is it still, is it, is it a, it's McDonald's now, right? A lot of people have. <laughs> we don't have, say that word. <laughs> I know a lot of people in the documentary are like, oh my God, the drumstick <laughs> is a McDonald's. I can't stand it. Yes. And it, yeah, I mean, the, basically Tim, it, I think the whole the whole game, the whole party scene. I mean, you're going to hear in the documentary. Tim loved to party. He was gregarious, and he had this tolerance for alcohol that uh, one of the musicians says, "I have never seen anyone that could drink toe to toe with one of my band members." Tim Lohmeyer could do it. <laughs> so he just, you know, that was part of his it factor. He just. He had this capacity to take in drugs and alcohol and still be 
relatively coherent, you know? Right. As a hemophiliac. As a hemophiliac. <laughs> and to do a good job. And right? to, yeah, and he, and you know, he always came, you know, to work and he he didn't slough off. He was a hard-working guy. He's just he had that magic combination and if my mother had lived, she probably would have said, "Now you slow down, Tim." But there was no other, you know, no one could talk to him. He wouldn't obey the pirate game. <laughs> so he sure as hell wasn't going to listen to anybody tell him what to do ever. Did it did it become something where just financially you had to sell it off at some point though? I mean, I think, you know, now understand that this is the the stories that are coming out of these interviews we've done. They're telling the story of how it all how it all came how it all dissolved. Sure. And one of those spokespeople are my sister. And she was actually co-running the place with Tim. And she's got the definitive answer. You know, she was getting... It, it, that's Anybody listening to this podcast, being in the music business is a grueling, hard business. And anybody running a music venue, it is also a grueling, hard business. You work late hours. You're constantly under stress. You never know if you're going to make a buck. You never know if people are going to show up. And it is. It's just really, really hard. And I think over time, that was just wearing my sister out. You know, she had little kids, kids in high school, and she had a little daughter that was still in grade school. And Tim was sick, and he wasn't as interested in doing it anymore. And he was grappling with his, you know, this horrible death sentence he got. Um, my dad had remarried and had, um, you know, kind of left the drumstick altogether. Uh, I just think the thing was just kind of winding down. It needed either some new energy or it was going to dissolve. Right. And I think given all those circumstances, she and Tim talked, o- talked it over and they just said, no, we're not doing it. Excuse me. We're not doing it anymore. Right. We're done. There wasn't going to be another reinvention. No, they, they would have, I don't know. I wasn't there at the time. Mm-hmm. Because I was living in Omaha, and I literally didn't go back to the drumstick after my husband and I left. He's like, we're never going back there again. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, they just came to the conclusion that the party was over. And so then the legacy, I'm sure, existed, but then not a whole lot of people know the story now. And so- God, no. Well, see, in 87, they it's like um, July 31st, 1987, there was a band called the Verandas, whom some people listening to this might remember. They were a local, I think they were a local or a regional band. Okay. They played. And the next morning, they took everything out of the building and had an auction, and it was all sold. And I don't know how long after that, the place was torn down, and the McDonald's was built. That's such a sad, almost metaphor for the time we live in. I mean, that that's well, what happened with it. It's it's... He was, he's a tragic figure, you know? He's like your classical tragic figure. He was, he had it all. Everything was wonderful, but he had this flaw, this tragic flaw, you know? And he he gets this tragic disease that was never supposed to happen. No one knew anything about it. That was never supposed to happen, but it did. Mm -hmm. Just like the car accident. Just like the car accident. Yeah, but the great thing about her brother, Tim, is that he knew how to live life. And through the documentary, we wanted to also convey that message as well. You know, enjoying those moments, enjoying your family, enjoying just living. Right. 
because yes, it can either through the car accident, like her mother or through, or slow, I don't like painful death as you know, HIV AIDS, it can be gone just as quickly as we all appear. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's here one day, gone the next, but what Sharonda said about Tim, he knew how to live life and he never once felt sorry for himself because of what happened. And he never once said, I regret having done all that, partied and taken all those drugs and had all that fun. And probably if I hadn't had so much fun, I wouldn't have gotten sick and I wouldn't have had to have that blood transfusion. Never said it. That wasn't how he rolled. He was an in-the-moment kind of guy. And, and life gave him everything it could he could suck from it you know what i mean Mm -hmm. he wanted every bit of it and he got as much as he could for as long as he could and even on his tombstone his epitaph he wrote it himself better to have wished didn't better to have done and wished didn't than didn't and wished did (laughs) so perfect (laughs) that he wrote that and that is on his tombstone and he's buried in sutton with my parents you know that's like Mm. our little you know, and it all goes back to this Nebraska story. These are just nobodies. We're nobodies. We never meant to be. You know, he was, and you can hear these musicians say this about Tim. He was super unpretentious. We we played all over the country, and some of these club owners were so full of themselves, and they were just, they were always trying to shaft us or, or try to make themselves look like they were more important because, look, I just booked this really cool show, and I'm, I'm really somebody. They go, that wasn't Tim. That was never Tim. He just wanted to have a good time. He wanted the people that came to have a good time. He wanted to take care of the band members. And it was like that that family feel. He was a really nurturing guy. And he he nurtured a lot of these bands into stardom. <laughs> <laughs> so crazy. And it so, is. I mean, I assume the documentary came out of wanting to honor his legacy and the legacy yeah. of like, your family's yeah. business and all of that. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I'm, I was living in Nashville for the 90s, pretty much the whole 90s. And I moved back to Lincoln in 2002. And, you know, I am not part of the drumstick story except at the very, very beginning. And so I moved back to Lincoln and people see my last name, Lohmeyer, and they go, Lohmeyer? Were you one of the Lohmeyers that ran the drumstick? And I'd go, well, yeah, my family had that. And they go, oh, my God, I love that place. We had so much fun. And then they'd proceed to tell me their stories. Mm-hmm. I was a kid, and your, your brother let me in, but he made me wear like a big M on my forehead in ma- magic marker so everyone knew I was a minor or, you know, just some crazy <laughs> shit like that. Or... Yeah, he knew I he knew I had a fake ID and so he charged me double to get in, you know. <laughs> and 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 oh, I saw these great bands. I saw this band and I saw that band and I was there when this big fight happened with X. X played the drumstick and there was a, somebody did was there this there's many variations of this story, but supposedly someone was throwing ice or spitting ice on Xene and John Doe jumped off the stage and proceeded to beat the guy up in the audience, <laughs> get back on stage and continue the concert. So, I mean, all these stories, and I'm, this is, I am not kidding you, Tom. Everywhere I went, if it was 
to the dry cleaners, to the grocery store, to the gas station. These people would just pop out of nowhere and here they'd hear my last name and they'd ask this question. And I started going, huh, wow, that's amazing that people still talk about this. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing my own research about it. And, you know, eventually I just went, holy shit, the drumstick's gone. The building's gone. Tim's gone. My sister's, you know, I don't want to say her age on the the podcast, (laughs) but she's not going to be around forever. We got to capture these stories Mm -hmm. or this whole thing will never have happened, you know, because there's no tangible anything left over from those days. There's a friends of the Friends of the Drumstick Facebook group where some photos and flyers from that time period have been collected. And I looked at that and I went, my God, we have to do a documentary about this. But that's that in and of itself is harder than it sounds, right? Which I'm sure oh you've realized. Sweet Jesus. That's why I'm here. Yeah. How, so, okay. Sharonda, what's your, how did you get involved with this project? I begged her, please <laughs> help me. I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, she, she, you're being facetious. Um, <laughs> I was recommended to the project um, by a friend of ours, uh, Chad Hofschild, um, because I believe you registered this with Nebraska Independent Film Projects and was trying to get some type of direction on how to make it into a documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, Kathy is a first-time filmmaker, and yes, it you know anybody who's listening to this who does not know how filmmaking works, it is much harder than... It sounds. Nobody who hasn't made a film understands that, though. I know. I'm going to say that again. (laughs) Filmmaking is much harder than it sounds. Um, So with my experience that I had, um, you know, being a product of USC Film School, um, working on previous documentaries before, um, two of my documentaries, one of them was with uh, was actually with Aaron Parks, um, his Arc Sarban documentary. Um, I'm part, I was part of that a little bit. And then also um, the documentary we have in New Orleans, which is called Hail to the Queens, that was backed by ITVS. Um, so having known that background, I was recommended to help her with her story and to, you know, because we do have all these stories and we have all of this information and all these archival footage and things of that nature, but you have to put it into a coherent storyline. And another thing for um, a lot of the people listening, documentaries have writers, y'all. Just want to let you know about that. Um, So (laughs) I am, I'm on the project to help write the story. Well, yeah, because like you can assemble all the information, but to make it uh, both a coherent and entertaining narrative is really difficult to find. Like, what do you do with every second of footage? Right. Because it can't just be purely a collection of people's stories. You have to actually tell the narrative. And so to do that, having never done that before, I assume you're kind of like, you know, I can play around with it. But having someone who's a little experienced would be really helpful here. Oh, I, you know, I I jumped into this with both feet without really knowing anything mm-hmm. except yeah, let's do a documentary. And I got encouraged by a couple friends to, that it was a good enough story. And so we just started taping the stories, taping the stories, taping the stories. And I got a little stupid, I don't even know what kind of Canon camera. She got camera. a camcorder and she got a lavalier mic and she knew that that's what she needed at least to start. Nice. Yes, yeah. yes. And so I just, I mean, I did about 12, 15 interviews 
of people telling these stories, you know, and, you know, they go off in different tangents. And I, we got interviews with some of the musicians, some of the less regional famous musicians, some of the local musicians. And, and all of a sudden, (laughs) after, you know, taking stories down for about two years, I'm going, what the fuck am I going to do with all this video? I have no idea how to you know, I don't even know how to edit. I can't. Right. <laughs> if I knew how to edit, I maybe would have started playing with that. But I don't have any editing machinery skills, whatever. And thank God Chad gave us Sharonda's name. And thank God when Sharonda came to my house and we talked about the project that we all hit it off and we decided we can do this as a team. And uh, yeah, at this point, we are getting ready to assemble a documentary thanks to Shonda's Sharonda's great skill set. So do you have you have all the footage you need for for now for a cut at least? We actually are recording a interview tomorrow. Oh, nice. And then okay. I think we're going to redo maybe one or two and yeah, we're pretty much done with our, our principal photography. Um maybe some B-roll, that's it. Nice. Um but for the most part we it's coming together. Yeah. And it's coming together probably a lot quicker than Kathy realized. Gosh. Um, you know, now I got to find the funds. <laughs> but the funny thing about it is a lot, you know, with filmmaking being um, one of these skills that just you have to put everything into. I think it's great that Kathy was able to look at what she had and was like, first of all, she needed some help. And then secondly, she knows enough about her story to realize that someone else might needs to look at it. Mm-hmm. And I would recommend that to anybody who's, you know, trying to be a filmmaker because we get into our little bubble about our own personal story and me not being from Nebraska, not being alive in most of that year, um, <laughs> being, being, being African American, um, all of that. And for me to look at her story and say, I think you have something there. Probably that was, I think, the start, the real start of putting this documentary together. And the plan is for it to be done this fall? Um, yes, that was the original plan. Um, <laughs> we're going to try to stick to that. Yeah, um, but we'll, we'll have something this fall. We will have. But yeah. it probably won't be the finished product quite. So what's yet. the what's the plan for it then once you get a cut that you like? We're going to actually have several cuts, and that's also pretty um, standard with a lot of documentaries, having a broadcast edit, having a theatrical edit, just um, kind of trying to expand your audience as much as possible. Ideally, we would like to have this on Nebraska television mm-hmm. um, because it is a Nebraska story. Yes, and we got to cut the cussing out <laughs> for that. Yeah, we have to have our broadcast safe version correct. <laughs> Um, but we also wanted to have a theatrical version as well that we can show um, all in the Midwest primarily. Um, but of course, we are open to having it elsewhere. But right now, that's what our focus is, is to show this around the Midwest. And our target audience would be people who remember the drumstick and then also people who may have wanted to know what was cool in Lincoln in the 1980s. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the story itself. I mean, we're going to focus on the story of family, mm-hmm. my brother Tim, the drumstick, and it's gone. That's, you know, the arc of the story, basically. Mm-hmm. But it's so many stories rolled into that, and that's where Sharonda's expertise comes in. Because it's the story of family. It's mm-hmm. the story of love. It's the story of tragedy. It's the story of, you know, 
rock musicians living foot, you know, hand to mouth on bologna and white bread sandwiches. It's the story of alt rock being born. It's the story of uh, what was what was the United States like in the 1980s. Right. Um, you know, it's the story of HIV. So it's it's all this in one magic moment, you know? And it's, I mean, it's broad enough that I assume there's appeal for that outside of just like, it's not just a Nebraska story, like exactly what you're saying. I mean, it's, I would imagine this is something that appeals to so many people who are interested in all these different topics. And we, like, we hope so. That's and, all I mean, we can say. I've been surprised even just how successful it seems like Nebraska-centered documentaries have been doing this year even. I mean, Bridget Timmerman's movie, George Dutras's movie. I mean, those they've been doing little theatrical screenings where George Dutras screened all over the state. Yeah, Documentary about farmers or, uh, you know, cowboys, basically. And it, it's, a, it's a huge hit. It's crazy successful. So, I mean, you've got to feel somewhat emboldened by that, right? You're like, okay, there's a, there's a hunger out there for Nebraska stories, at least here. I think with the Nebraska stories, um, Nebraska being in the center of the country, I think there is a sort of appeal to, I don't want to say maybe like a simple, it's not really a simple farmer life type of thing, but there's, it's a relatable factor for a lot of people, especially who grew up in smaller towns or who grew up, you know, not on the coast. I think that's where those stories, even, you know, with their stories, the appeal of that, Mm -hmm. Um, especially with this era of music. Yeah. I mean, yeah, all this happened in Nebraska, but, you know, all of these, all of this launched onto a national scene when these bands hit it nationally. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's also a kind of a subculture story in Nebraska because, you know, we're all you know, hayseed farmers and, you know, we aren't cool and we go to church and, right. you know. <laughs> That's that persona until you get that punkness yeah. into you. Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> this isn't that. <laughs> this is like a hardcore rock and roll story about, you know, people who love rock and roll music and they wanted it played loud and they found the venues where they could listen to it loud and it made the culture richer mm-hmm. because this happened. Some of these people that came through the drumstick as musicians, as artists, as patrons, they all went off and had lives where they they were enriched by these experiences they had mm-hmm. and became artists of their in their own right or the, their roots were built on these in these little venues that were all over the country where they got to know the fans. And, you know, it's a little slice of Americana. Right, yeah. I think there's an audience out there for this. Oh, yeah. It's a crazy story. I, I mean, <laughs> and I, would, I would true. say so. <laughs> I, like I said, I have absolutely zero ties to Nebraska other than moving here in 2015. So if she could attract me with the story, I believe that there are other people out there who would enjoy this story. Where should people go to either support or just find more information about it? I have a website. It's called remember the drumstick.com, you know, www. Mm-hmm. We Dot. also have a Facebook group. <laughs> there's a, I have a Facebook. There's a, I don't have a Facebook group. Another man named Craig Ellen Ellensworth. Gosh, I wish I remember his last name. Anyway, he started this Friends of the Drumstick thing in 2009. I didn't even start it. He started it. And it's got over a thousand people that are Friends of the Drumstick. And they just share stories or post pictures or flyers. And I try to keep that kind of informed of what's going on. And then I also have a um, Facebook page 
and that page is called Remember the Drumstick. And that's pretty much mostly, you know, the stuff we're doing, the talks we do, the fundraisers. That's pretty much devoted to the the documentary. I want to emphasize that we are fiscally sponsored. So if anybody does want to throw a few dollars our way, that would be great. Yeah. Um, Nebraska, Indep- the Nebraska Independent Film Projects is our fiscal sponsor. So if, you know, if, if they want to contribute $100 or more, we can we, it can go to the NIFP and then they'll get a tax write off and then they'll just give us they'll do their thing and give us the money. Mm-hmm. So I mean the the website is where the donations should go though because we have a link on the website for a PayPal connection. You just have to have a PayPal account and you can sign right up or call me. <laughs> and I'll and I'll talk to you. I'll meet you. I will pick up your check. <laughs> because in all honesty, Tom, this is where we're at. We got to have the money. Right. Otherwise, this ain't going to get done. <laughs> Otherwise, there, it's just going to stay in a rough cut. Is it a specific amount that you guys need at this point? Or is it just sort of enough to keep going? Um, right now, we're looking for finishing funds. Mm-hmm. So um, as far as dollar amount is concerned, I would say we're looking between fifteen and 20000 and some people probably just bucked at that number, but um, documentaries actually have pretty decent budgets. Um, I know my documentary, Hail to the Queens, actually has a $700,000 budget. Yeah. So we actually have been doing pretty well, but I would say that oh, yeah. would be to finish. We need probably about 15 to 20 grand to finish. Easy. I mean, the, the pre-production stuff, I pretty much did all the videotaping. <laughs> Right. So myself and another gentleman named Pat Elward, who's a great videographer, he's here in Omaha. He's been helping with the videos where he can. And uh, I've been doing as much as I can with my little recorder. And uh, But what will really lift this thing is the music. And getting music rights is proving to be a bitch. Yeah, I believe it. But I mean, I can also see why you can't just not have music in this. It's well, in a music documentary, it's right. a little hard. Yes. Yeah. The, the good news is um, some of the local bands are donating some of their songs. Oh, nice. And Jason and the Scorchers have donated a couple songs. Um, another band called uh, the Rip Chords, who was from uh, Nebraska and then moved to Minneapolis. And I think they're, they were also under uh, Model Citizens. They donated some songs. And we have some old tapes that were actually made live at the drumstick. Nice. Yes. And we have video footage. Very, very little. Because, you know, no, nobody walked around with a camera and a right. video machine in, a in minor, their pocket. minor, minor SD, <laughs> like standard definition. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And I was recently contacted by a woman who made a college movie. And it was filmed in the drumstick the building wow so she says she's getting that made onto into an mp4 format so we can look at it and see if i don't know what kind of i didn't know what format to tell her so you should let me know if it's not right tell her the movie format (laughs) (laughs) the one the one that has the play button that has video (laughs) but anyway she's gonna get it in a format that hopefully we'll be able to look at it and maybe at least have some shots of the interior of the place when it was a club right yeah which none of that you know we have is little still photographs a little bit here a little bit there it'll definitely be easier in the instagram age to make documentaries about anything in a few oh decades. my gosh that is true yeah yeah too much yeah. a little bit too much <laughs> well you know you, it'll be a lot more to sift through that's true yeah, <laughs> yeah that's that's laborious though so it is it is <laughs> 
Well, I wish you guys the best of luck with getting this thing finished. It's a fascinating story. I look forward to seeing the movie when it's done. And you will get an invitation to the premiere, oh, sir. I would love to go. That's so exciting to me. Thank you for talking to me today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you Have for having one. us on. Riverside Chats is hosted by me, Tom Noblock. I produce the show along with Ben Matukowicz through our company, Exarbon Creative. You can follow everything we're doing. Just find us on Facebook go to or go to exarbancreative.com. Any other social media, too. We're not only on Facebook. I don't know why I framed it that way. We record the show out of Studio 62 right here in Pet Shop in Benson, home of BFF. Check them out as well. Just check everything out we talk about this show. I'm not going to bring it up unless it's worth your time. All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, as always, we do with the Patreon. So if, if you you know, if you listen to my intro and you were like, yeah, I don't know, this guy seems kind of annoying. But then you listen to the whole conversation and you realize, oh, that was actually, okay, that, that was pretty good. If now you've changed your mind, you want to throw in a couple dollars, that's still available. It'll always be available over at patreon.com slash exarbancreative. Exarbon, of course, is Nebraska backwards. When we first changed our company name to Exarbon Creative, somebody uh, from somebody who lives in Canada actually messaged me and said, did you get bought out by a chic? Uh, no, it, it is just Nebraska backwards. Next week, we got a good show. We got Caitlin Little on, artist, talking about all the things that she's been up to her entire life maybe i don't know kind of i haven't talked to her yet we'll see as always great conversations please subscribe please leave us a review do whatever you need to do and thanks for listening we'll be back next week <laughs>